Welcome to the Westside Investors Network, WIN, your community of investing knowledge for growth. This is the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast for real estate professionals by real estate professionals. This show is focused on the next step in your career, investing. Thank you for listening. And please, if you like our content, rate us on your podcast provider. And now your hosts, AJ and Chris Shepard. Today, we've got Gary Komanaka on the line with us. Gary's a seasoned investor that survived the crash of 2008, 2009. In this show, he's willing to share his mistakes that we can all benefit from avoiding. We also touch on how important it is to partner with great operators. So let's get started. Hey, we got Gary Komanaka here. He's living over in Hawaii and mostly a retired investor or still invests actively in stuff, but definitely more passively than most. And Gary, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so my name is Gary Kamanaka. I, like you said, I live in Honolulu, Hawaii. I'm actually a full-time practicing dentist, so I do have a have a day job. But I guess I'm a part-time real estate investor on the side. And I started investing back in about 2002, and I'm sure we'll, we'll kind of get into a, l- a little bit more. But I've tried to do a lot of different things. I kind of got killed in the crash, and you know, 0809 area kind of held on for dear life kind of made it through some rough times and then started reinvesting again about 2015, 16. And I mostly do long-term investing now or out-of-state investing because Hawaii is a pretty expensive place to invest in. So I do have some properties here, but I do most of my investing in other states now. So I mostly focus on like single family or small multifamilies in I mean, I have some properties in Oregon, in Memphis, Tampa, Houston, and then I just got in, recently got involved in a couple apartment syndications. So those are in Alabama. Those are like three pretty big complexes. And then I also do some kind of like crowdfunding through my self-directed IRA. And then just recently at one of my, at a local high school, I started, you know, starting to do a little bit of teaching to high school oh, students, which I think is super cool. I mean, it's, it's just been a few semesters and I don't have like my own class, but it's, I just, I think what a great way to give fun. back. That's amazing. Right. right. Yeah, that's awesome. Right. Well, wonderful. It sounds like you're in a lot of different types of real estate. So that's very good. So like, how did you get started? Like what, what was the first kind of like impetus to like get into real estate? Yeah, so I think I got started probably similar to a lot of other investors. I had already graduated from dental school. I was living in Portland. This is probably about 2002. And one of my friends gave me the book, Rich Dad, to read. And, you know, I was pretty classically educated. Obviously, I went, made it through dental school. So, but Rich Dad, Poor Dad was just, you know, obviously it opens your mind to a different way of thinking. And Shortly thereafter, this financial planner that I was kind of working with, he also gave me the book Multiple Streams of Income by Robert Allen to read. And the only reason I mentioned Robert Allen is because shortly after I read that book, there was a quote-unquote creating wealth with real estate Robert Allen seminar in Portland. And this is back in 2002 when there wasn't nearly as much information available online as there is today. So... I actually had to like take off work and paid five grand to go to a three-day real estate seminar. But I mean, that was a lot then. It's still a lot now, but that definitely got me going. And then after that, I used to go to a lot of like local seminars that were held by realtors or other agents. And then I joined the Northwest Real Estate Investors Association, which is a local, or in Portland, it's a local real estate investors club, which 
was super informative and it was, I mean, it was like people say, it was like the Wild West back then. I mean, people would bring deals to the meetings and just people would be picking up deals left and right at like monthly meetings. But that's kind of how I got started. Nice. I think, Did you partner with anyone on any of those deals or make some like good, good connections? Yeah, I mean, I think that was one of the best thing, things about the meetings was it was easy to make connections because I didn't really know people in the area and not from Portland. Like I mentioned, I was a practicing dentist, so I didn't have any contacts in the, in the industry. But then, you know, when you go to the meetings, there's like 50 people and there's pretty much everyone, you know, you, you needed a lender or a contract or whatever. They're all there. And then the association also had a list of contacts. Like I found my tax accountant who I still use today and then had to use a an attorney once for an eviction and that type of thing. So it was just a very good resource to find different people in the industry that obviously as investors we are always looking for. Having resources is absolutely imp- important no matter what part of real estate you're doing. So kind of digging more into like how did you get into like real estate? Were your parents ever involved in real estate or had you like have they I don't know shaped or helped you in any way with doing that? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. My dad was actually a realtor when he was like a part-time realtor when I was growing up, but he actually didn't really do much in investing. And I was kind of thinking about this before. And I think part of the reason I kind of got into it is, I don't know if a lot of people, a lot of young people realize, but you know, when you go to college, everything's really fun. You're seeing your friends all the time. But then when you actually get into the workforce, you work from, let's say, eight to five, you go home, you eat dinner, you work out or whatever, you get up, you go to work and you see like the same five people and you do the same thing over and over and over again, but you don't really see your friends because everybody's working. And then I, after a couple of weeks, I remember thinking to myself, there's no way that I can just do this for like 40 years. I mean, <laughs> really like all my life is I'm going to just live in this office and come home and by myself. And I mean, it was just, I, I needed some other outlet. And I think nice thing about real estate, I mean, Rich said for that, that definitely gets you into a different mindset. And I think just the whole real estate industry, so many different things you can do. You're always learning. It's exciting. I mean, no two, no two deals are like, there's a lot of problem solving involved. So it's not like you're doing like some mindless activity, right? It's not like you're playing a video game. Oh, yeah. Do some room. I mean, you're solving people's problems. You're trying to figure out how to make the deal work. You know, there's so many different things like from single family or to apartment complexes or, I mean, commercial real estate, which I'm not super into right now. But I mean, there's just so many options. And I remember telling my mom when I'm going to work as a dentist, I never am like so excited that I, that I can't sleep. I mean, I just go to sleep and go to work. But I remember telling her whenever I'm working on some real estate deal, I could literally be lying in bed and I just cannot sleep because all I'm thinking about is, Hey, how do I make the deal work? What does the seller want? Or how are we going to do the financing? I think we have all the different options to try and make some kind of deal work. And I was just once I kind of got started. So cool. But that's how I first got started. I went to a local real estate seminar that seminar that was about like duplexes. It was focusing on duplexes and farms. And shortly thereafter, I bought a duplex. That's kind of how, how I got my first property. Great. So we, we had talked a little bit earlier and you said that you had kind of started acquiring in 2002, but then you, you, you had some struggles during the crash of like 2007 to 2010. What, do you want to share a little bit more about kind of like what you, what you learned from that time or what happened? 
Yeah, sure. I mean, I think I got caught up in the same thing that a lot of people did was lenders were doing a lot of 100% financing. And obviously, that was my mistake for getting over leveraged. But I had several properties that were that I bought with 100% financing. And so the first loans were usually like 80% and the second loans were usually the, the kind of the killer ones where they would have like adjustable rate mortgages and fixed for a certain amount of time or pretty high interest rates. So a lot of these properties, you know, I bought like, let's say I bought a property for like 150 grand, but I 100% financed it. And let's say the payments were like 1200 a month and the rent was 1200 a month on paper. It kind of looks like it's okay as long as the property is. But then when the market crashed and the property now is worth like 130 and then the payments started fluctuating because the interest rates were moving, then let's say you're paying like 1300 a month and now you're renting it for 1200 a month and you're losing money every month. Plus, and that's not even taking into account vacancy and repairs. So I had, you know, obviously a few of these that were going on. And once you start going backwards, it sort of snowballs on you. So now I had maybe like four or five of these that were kind of underwater and I'm just like losing money on. I mean, there was one condo that I had that it was being, I don't want to say, it was being in, built in the waterfront, you know, where in downtown Portland. And I think I bought it for like 275 and then my payments were something like 2000 a month. And there was like a $500 housing association fee on it. And I was renting it for like 1095. So after property management, yeah, losing like $1,500 a month, not just one property, but it was just for about five years, I would say when the market was crashing, it just was kind of like quote on for dear life. And I had since moved out of the Portland area. So I was living in the Bay area, which is pretty expensive and I was making decent money, but I would definitely say it was super, super stressful. I also had a couple of properties on lease options, which were kind of nice because those I could just let them, I could just kind of let the options expire without exercising them versus having loans tied to them because the underwater properties, you know, if you owe more than the property is worth and you can't really even sell it. So you're kind of stuck. And yeah. I guess I was kind of lucky in that I only had like maybe four or five of these because, you know, there's people that had hundreds of these and they kind of got killed. I mean, I, went through some rough times, but I was actually able to make it through without, you know, really defaulting on payments and stuff. So that condo actually found an agent who short sold it for me for like 150 grand, which I don't know how she did that, but wow. ended up paying like four or 5,000 to get out of that one, which that's, I still have no idea how she did it. But that's pretty awesome. My yeah. guess is that affected your credit a little bit. Yes, for like seven years, I just short on it. But it, I mean, it wasn't in default, but it definitely taking my credit, but I was just happy to, yeah. it was like a cloud that was lifted off my shoulders. I can imagine. So, so if, if you're, if you're talking to a bunch of like newer investors, like what are some of the concepts that like living through that kind of era and that time that you really like took away from those deals that you mentioned? Yeah. I mean, so one thing that I would say is definitely, I mean, leverage is, is it's, there's pros and cons. I mean, it's good because you can get in with maybe lower, less money down, but definitely I would be careful. I mean, they don't do those 100% financing loans now, but even in the portfolio that I have now, I mean, I know a lot of people talk about doing, you know, like burying out of property, in and out of properties and putting loans on all the pro- properties you have, but I'm more careful now not to have loans tied to all my properties because back then I had maybe like 10 properties or whatever but I had loans and some, some properties I have two loans on single properties, you know, and it's just, just so much that goes along with all the loans. So now I have about 
25 units, but I think like 10 of them are paid off. So there's no loans attached to them. And I kind of like that ratio better. So I think leverage is definitely good in that you can you know, leverage your money and buy more property. But I would also say just be careful not to get too over leveraged because you never know when, you know, there's going to be market corrections. And the interesting thing that I found was that listening to podcasts and all that, there's a lot of like really, really experienced investors who didn't see the crash coming either. I mean, obviously I was a fairly new investor and I had no idea. I, didn't know, I don't even know if I knew what was happening while it was happening, but there's a lot of really experienced investors that I was surprised that they didn't even know what was coming. So, if, you know, if they can't predict it, then I don't know if anybody really can. So I would just say to just be careful using leverage. I mean, it's definitely can be used, but don't go too crazy with it. That's what I would, but that's what I've learned. And I've, trying to keep my loans kind of under a little more moderate and not have loans to all my properties now. Do you look for a certain amount of cash flow on a property or? Right. So now, I mean, in the properties that I'm looking for now, I'm kind of looking around that sort of 1% rural range. I tend to look for tenants or properties that will, where tenants are paying about $1,000 of rent or more because I was talking to a couple of agents and, you know, they were saying that if tenants are paying like $500 a month, then a lot of those tenants will be a little lower income tenants or they may not take as good care of the property versus tenants who are paying, you know, $1,000 or more, they tend to be a little bit more stable and maybe a little more stable in the neighborhood and a lot of dual income families. So he was telling me that anything, if they're paying over about $1,000 a month or more, that's like a pretty decent area. And actually I use a lot of HELOCs now to purchase properties. So a lot of the properties I'm, I'm purchasing, I've bought some single families just off of a HELOC and then I just pay the HELOC off, you know, with like a Velocity Bank and kind of using the HELOC as a checking account. So I have two properties in Hawaii that I currently have HELOCs off of and then I run a lot of my financing off of the HELOCs. As far as yeah, cash numbers, I try to get about $1,000 a month but without taking into account all the vacancy and stuff just because I figure that's a pretty decent spread. But I would say that I'm more of a macro guy. I don't, <laughs> I don't get too lost in all the numbers, which is probably, you know, I probably make some mistakes, but I just try not to get too paralyzed by an- analyzing everything. So I'm more of a macro guy, which is probably good and bad. That's kind of how I, I work. So if you had kind of a gut feeling about what, your portfolio loan to value is and like where you want it to be. I mean, having gone through, you know, kind of a loan to value crisis with your previous portfolios, what are you aiming for? You know, like just so that you could be ready for the market to turn. And that's a great question. I probably should know the number off the top of my head, but I would say probably, you know, in the 70%, or less would probably be reasonably safe. I think, you know, market correction of maybe like 20% would be pretty high. You know, I mean, I would say that's pretty far to go. But also I think as long as the rental numbers are, you know, above your mortgage payments, if as long as, you know, you're renting for a lot or a decent amount above your mortgage, you know, then the rental market would have to crash and the sales market would have to crash in order for you to start losing money. So because I have a fair amount of properties that aren't, that don't, that don't have loans on them, I kind of feel pretty comfortable. But as far as exact percent, I would say maybe like 70%, that I think that would yeah. be comfortable. 
I think if the market crashes like 50% and the rental market crashes like 50%, <laughs> I think the country's probably got some other issues. There's than, some bigger problems out there. Right, yeah, definitely. I mean, Portland right now is kind of going through the worst rental market crash that I can find. I was, I was researching this last night and, you know, rents have gone down 6% in Multnomah County. And I mean, that's, Certainly interesting, but in the suburbs, it's it's way better. But this is kind of like a 10-year low. So it's very interesting because values are at an all-time high and rents, you know, have just had the biggest drop ever. Well, not ever, but as far as I can find in Portland. But another question. So leading up to the crash, do you think that either fear or greed had any, like, I guess, influence on your decision-making? Probably greed. Financing was so easy to come by, and it was easy to get caught up in everybody buying property. And when you go to real estate meetings, everybody's, like, talking about how many properties they have, and you go talk to lenders, and they're always saying, oh, yeah, we can get you 100% financing on this. And as far as fear, I don't know about fear, but I would say... I'm sure greed took some part in it. And like I said, I definitely made mistakes. I'm not blaming the crash or anything. Over the years, I've sort of had to look back and look in the mirror and realize all the mistakes that I made and realize that, you know, I'm the only one that can control my destiny. So when I, if something bad happens, there's probably some mistake that I made. So I think greed definitely played a part in it. Yeah. And do you feel like fear has, you know, after having gone through that period where you bought too much and maybe were a little greedy, do you think that fear of that happening again has affected your strategies? I mean, I would say I definitely think I'm more careful now. I remember when I, so between 2006 and Maybe 2013, I didn't buy any properties. I was moving around a few times. And then I remember when I bought that first property in Hawaii in 2013, I was definitely pretty nervous. But that was also with the prices in Hawaii being pretty high. But I, the first property we bought here was sort of like a two-unit property. And I made sure that the rent was going to cover the mortgage if we had to, like, couldn't cover it. And we had to move back in with mom and dad or something. <laughs> Even now, I mean, there's probably I'm sort of at a position right now where I feel like I'm not actively looking right now, but I feel like there's properties that I probably could purchase, but I'm also trying to not get too crazy and let let things get out of hand again. So I think I'm a little bit more careful. The other thing, I'm, I'm also a little bit older, and I feel like financially I'm in a pretty decent spot, so there's no real, like, need for me to get let things get out of control. So definitely some fear in that you know where you came from. And the last thing I would want would be to basically make the same mistakes and get over leveraged and have some you know market correction or whatever and go through the same thing again, especially now. I mean, when I went through it then, I was like 30 or whatever, but now being in my mid-40s with a family, I definitely would not want to drag my family through that. So do you, like starting out your real estate career, you're kind of touching on how you were in a different mode, like kind of a a wealth accumulation mode, as opposed to now you're more of in a a preservation mode. And 
What do you think kind of flipped the switch for you there? Because that's pretty interesting concept, you know, that to take more risks and, you know, while you're trying to accumulate wealth and versus now that you've reached a, a decent plateau, trying to keep it is the main priority. Right. I think, well, part of the reason when I started, off, I was maybe like 20 or so and single and living by myself. And I think you don't really know what you don't know. And also at that age, you're pretty reckless. I mean, I think 20 somethings tend to be a little bit reckless and you just kind of flying by the seat of your pants. And obviously there's a lot that I didn't know, but I thought I knew. So I think I don't, think I really had everything all that well planned out. I think I was just like buying properties and kind of, I thought it was fun and was just getting caught in the wave of everybody buying properties, like a lot of people. And then when the market crashed and I had a, well, several years to obviously sit down and think about what was going on and what I needed to do. I mean, I definitely love the industry enough to make me want to start again. But I think now, you know, I'm more mature and then also, you know, so I have a few properties in Hawaii, which I think are good for like wealth building, but I'm also trying to get more properties that have better cash flow numbers, just to, I know cash flow tends to be sort of like a defense thing, you know, as long as properties are cash flowing, then it makes it easier to hold on to properties. So I sort of have my portfolio kind of, there's a, some properties that are for appreciation and wealth, and then some that are more geared towards cash flow. And then I guess also in different markets, just to, sort of protect against i mean obviously if the u.s market crashes that's one thing but in different cities tend to get affected differently as well so i think i'm just more mature and then also when you hear a lot of people talk about wealthy people they say the one thing you don't want to do is lose it <laughs> you know that's you can always it's always good to try and grow it but he said once you lose it that it's way harder to get it back so i figure even if i maybe go a little bit slower I think my main objective right now is not to like lose a lot. And I feel like I can still buy maybe a little lower price properties with better cash flow and just sort of, it's definitely more of a measured approach now, I think. than back then when I was, honestly, I wasn't really thinking too much and just kind of going. Yeah. So recently you said that you had started investing in some syndications. Is that, part of the strategy is to like move towards that more passive investing or? I mean, that's kind of what I was thinking about just because I know I have a lot of, I have about 25 units that are, you know, single family and small multifamily. And I mean, obviously you guys know, you guys are my property manager in Oregon, but <laughs> like even for example, this year, I think we rehab like, like three places in Oregon and because we're having a bunch of places in Florida. And then when there's a lot of rehabs going on, it's just, it's just a lot to keep track of. And I think, as a lot of people say, once you get over about 20, it's just kind of hard to keep track of everything. So last year, I just joined a few syndications just to kind of see how it was going or to see how it goes to just try it out. And then, I mean, part of me wants to, is maybe interested in doing more of an active role in, a, in, this, in a syndication, possibly as a general partner. I mean, I'm just investing as a limited partner right now just to kind of, you know, see how the process works. Nice. Part of me interested in getting involved as a general partner, but then I don't know how, you know, the time issue would be. But a lot of people say that it tends to get better returns, obviously with, you know, bigger numbers. A lot of people say it's similar to a, you know, like a smaller complex, but just adding another zero or two. So 
That's, I was I was going <laughs> to ask, how has your experience with the syndications gone so far? I mean, it's been going okay so far. I think the tricky part is when before I kind of got into it, like one of my friends told me that you should analyze like as many deals as you can for like six months. And then before you, before you like participate in this, in this indication. But what I found the hard part is I think even if there's like a great deal, if there's a bad operator, then they can screw it up or they could, if there's a bad deal and a good operator, I mean, I think the operator or the operators at the end of the day are going to make or break the deal. I mean, you know, if the operator is going to screw you and run off with your money, then you know, what are you going to do? Even if you analyze the deal and thought all the numbers were legit, then it's hard to, you know, they're still going to take your money. So what I did was I actually found someone locally in Hawaii who is pretty accessible and I don't pretty accessible, meaning that he's very easy to get in contact with. We had dinner one time and, you know, every time you email him, he always emails back. He's on podcasts and stuff. So I figure he's pretty out there. So I was thinking it would probably be kind of hard for him to like just disappear. But also I didn't put like a ton of money into this indication. It's not like I put half my income in there. So I am in like three syndications with him. It's not, you know, a ton of my portfolio, but just kind of want to see how it goes with that. And then like with you guys, I spoke to you guys about one other view and I'll probably maybe looking to get into a couple more with some other operators and kind of just see how it goes. But like I mentioned, just not a huge portion of my, of my portfolio in case sure. things do go sideways. And then well, it's putting your, your, you know, your cash flow and what you're bringing in back to work. Like the, right. one of the problems is like with real estate is it's not like stocks. Like if with a stock, you just like reinvest and then that money keeps churning. But once you start having income come off your properties, you got to find another place for it to go. So it keeps compounding, right? Right. And then just with the single family and the multifamilies, like I mentioned, it's just getting hard for me to keep track of everything. So that's why I was like, well, maybe I'll try putting some in some syndications, which is a little bit more passive and then it should still be generating income, but maybe take up a little bit less of my time. That's great. That's good to hear you making that step. And I'm hopeful that it's more passive for you. Has it, has it been easier to keep track of so far? Or? I mean, I would say yes, but I think in general, like I was saying earlier, I'm, I'm more of a macro guy. I feel like I need someone to actually look <laughs> through all the numbers because I get the reports from the, Indication every month when I get the webinars, but you know, some months I don't watch webinar, and you know, I should be more involved in what's going on. But yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I'm pretty sure you got into real estate so that you can enjoy your life and do the other things, right? Like, not necessarily right. look at the details. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah. So I figure as long as money's coming in and nothing's going sideways, then I figure things are probably okay. But I do keep everything on record in case I need to go back and look through everything. Right. So. Kind of diving back in to your strategies after the recession, like what what do you think the toughest thing was about rebuilding, and you know just like and what gave you that drive to restart? I think the hard part, obviously, is just getting back into it once you've been out for a few years. I think one thing that really helped is one of my good friends who also lives in Hawaii, he was buying properties and he buys like the $25,000 properties in like Cleveland, like in pretty bad areas, but he was buying $25,000 duplexes that rent for like a thousand dollars a month. And he was buying a lot of properties and he actually really got me motivated because I was like, well, if he can do this, then I can do it. <laughs> so, and he's, he's one of my really good friends and he's bought a bunch of them. And then he would always be telling me, 
all these properties that he's looking at. And he'd be, I think the year before I kind of got back into it, he must have bought like maybe 10 units in like Cleveland and Toledo. And I don't remember what other cities, but he definitely got me motivated again. Cause I was like, well, if he can do it and I can do it. And then that's kind of how I started looking in, in other cities. Now I don't buy the $25,000 properties because you know, even he tells me that paper, the returns are very good, but he does say there's a lot of, vacancies and he was saying a lot of times he'll have his ask his agent to go look at the property and then the agent like literally won't go there or <laughs> the property manager to manage it and the property managers won't they're like we don't go to that area and uh. there's a lot of prob- problems with just even getting people to go visit the properties but i mean he must be doing okay because he keeps buying them but he's definitely kept me motivated and i talked to him a lot so we're always kind of comparing notes on um, but i would say definitely having someone who also invest is a good motivator for sure. Yeah, so you would say that being surrounded by other investors fueled your desire to get back into it? Right, and then also listening to podcasts and you know reading a lot. And I think the internet also you know, it makes it a lot easier to see properties online. So a lot of the properties now I buy, like obviously in different states other than Hawaii, and I've not visited them, which I should, but we all thinking was, you know, the p- property that you guys bought for me in Portland, I had never saw that property right there. Honestly, one of my best properties. It's been great. The one you guys got for me on that 1031, it's had like so little repairs. It's been... Well, we did the remodel. <laughs> we, we did the remodel on it to make it super, super slick. It shouldn't have any repairs for another 10 years. <laughs> yeah, seriously one of my best properties but that was also one of the motivating factors because i was like well i can buy that property that's like literally one of the best properties and if i can do that in portland i can buy it in other states as well you got to find good operators in other states though <laughs> oh they're out there so having gone through that emotional roller coaster of the great recession like you know where you experience experienced the greed and then you like just had the loss and then the period of time where you didn't want to invest you were afraid of investing what like what have you taken away from that and then what can you share like with everyone how going through that experience and like if you knew if you had that 2020 hindsight what would you have done differently yeah, I mean, I think kind of the interesting that I was kind of thinking about is I held on to those properties through the crash, but I also held on to them long enough. So even going through the crash, they all appreciated pretty well afterwards. I mean, I was selling properties maybe like one a year from about 2015. And I think I sold my last one, you know, the duplex that you guys sold in 2020, but there was a fair amount of equity. So if you kind of think about it, I bought these properties at pretty much the worst time, you know, when the market was at a peak. I didn't buy anything when the market crashed, which is when I should have bought everything. But I still ended up doing fine. I mean, these properties still appreciated. I was able to pay off the loans with these properties. I was able to sell some of those properties that were previously underwater and then buy new properties. So I would say that even though, I mean, I think time is definitely on your side. And as long as you buy things properly, even if, you know, just kind of assume that you're going to go through some market ups and downs. But if you go in 
buying them properly and you're not like over leveraged and you know your rents can still cover your payments and all that then even if the market does crack you just hold it for long enough that things are going to come back you'll still appreciate it and you'll still be fine so i think that's kind of what i realized is that over time even though i did get pretty hammered in that crash i still ended up being fine and like i mentioned i bought properties all at the worst times and it still ended up being great i came i still came out i feel like i'm in a pretty good spot now and even though i made a lot of mistakes it still worked out i think that's the nice thing about real estate is that it's fairly forgiving if you hold on to properties long enough the property values are gonna probably always go up you know over the long term is what i would yeah. say so yeah kind of, definitely the the get rich slow plan so right. a lot of people think that it's some get rich quick thing but i think as long as you plan correctly and keep the long-term vision in mind then you can make it through any correction. Yeah, so you know as long as you're holding your units or your properties for long enough, market timing doesn't really matter is basically what you're saying. That's what I think. I mean, I've talked to a lot of people and I don't know if anyone can really time the market and then kind of like I mentioned before, there's a lot if you listen to a lot of podcasts, there's a lot of quote-unquote experts that got killed in the market crash as well and I think there's a lot of people that will say they were buying during the crash time it just they just happened to be getting started at that time but a lot of people didn't really realize that they were buying at like the best time I think it was more of a coincidence I mean obviously there's some people that knew what was happening and, and probably timed it but from what I hear it seems like most people didn't really know and the people who got in at the right time it was more of a coincidence than actually planned yeah, that's really interesting. Like, so you think that looking back on most of your purchases, you purchased at the exact wrong time, but you were lucky in the fact that Portland was a pretty attractive market after the crash. And just holding your properties for long enough produced a pretty fantastic return. And one that, you know, had you not invested at all, you would have been way worse off than you know having gone through buying at the worst possible time and then just kind of writing it out right that's what i would say i mean i don't have the exact numbers on let's say i put the money to something else and what it could have done i mean that's kind of hard to calculate but i feel like with the appreciation that i got even after the crash like i mentioned i was still able to pay off other properties so i would sell one property and and pay off like a loan on another property and I was able to buy, you know, properties in other states with basically with cash from the sale of of, of those properties that were previously on the water. So I feel like it it put me in a good, pretty good spot. And then the other thing it also helped me do was like one of the properties I bought in Portland, I was able to use to help purchase a property in Hawaii, which was wonderful because property in Hawaii is super expensive. <laughs> Yeah, a couple hundred grand from a property in Portland that was previously killing you, and now it's your down payment on a house in in Hawaii. That works out pretty nicely, right? That's incredible. Yeah, so we've got our favorite four questions to close up the podcast. If you could give your twenty five year old self any piece of advice, what would it be? Okay, so I was kind of thinking about this. I would probably give my 25-year-old self probably two pieces of advice. So I'm about 46 now, and the first one would be to definitely maybe stop partying and drinking so much. 
35 instead of 45 because my wife and I kind of eliminated alcohol earlier this year, kind of around COVID. And it's amazing, like, how much better I feel. I feel I'm way more energy and way more focused, way more productive. And then obviously you save, like, so much money. I mean, last year I would have so many Uber bills that we'd be Ubering everywhere. And they're just not buying alcohol at stores. And even when you go out to dinner, our dinner bills are so much less when we're not drinking. But the other kind of part of that would be to have kids sooner because we have a three and a half year old daughter right now who's pretty much has me wrapped around her finger. And I would say that spending my nights with her is far more rewarding than, you know, the best nights I've had partying hands down. So definitely take it easy a little bit sooner and maybe settle down and have some kids earlier. Nice. That's That's great advice. Next question is what was your first entrepreneurial endeavor? Okay, I mean, I think us as real estate investors, obviously, we're all fairly entrepreneurial. I think yeah. the first thing I did was probably trying to sell things on eBay. <laughs> but I also had you know, weird things like I was trying to sell websites for a while. I have a couple of touring patents. I think my problem is I'm just not very good at self-promotion. And I think the problem, obviously, is if you have like a super good idea, if nobody knows about it, then it's pretty worthless. So that's kind of my thing is even, I mean, I obviously I like to invest in real estate now, but even now I don't really openly talk to it about to a lot of people. I mean, not the friends that I know that invest, we talk about it, but you know, I probably need to get over that hump and just be more open to people about what I do. Yeah. So how has your formal and informal training shaped your journey? Okay. So I would definitely need to thank my parents because they, gave me every opportunity to succeed. They sent me to a very good private high school. I went to a good undergraduate school. Obviously, I went to dental school. I think going through that and working as a dentist obviously makes it relatively easy to get financing. And obviously, in the real estate industry, you know that, I mean, it definitely helps. You don't need to be able to get financing, but if you have good credit and a decent income, it definitely makes financing easier to come by, which has has helped. But as far as informally, obviously they don't teach a lot of real estate in school. So I had to learn all that by myself, you know, going to, or on my own, going to seminars, you know, podcasts, I read a lot of books and it's kind of interesting to learn what successful people do and to try and do things that they do. Like I try to spend my time doing the more, like they say, the higher and best use of my time. So I, tried to, I don't really watch a lot of TV. I spend a lot less time, you know, on ESPN and playing fantasy football. And I try to cut out more more, most of the kind of frivolous activities. So like I'm a lot more focused when I work and get done what I need to get done. And then when I'm done working, then I can focus my energy and spend time with my daughter and not be like checking my phone and, you know, be distracted so I can focus more on playing with her or working out or whatever I'm doing. So I think they kind of go hand in hand. I think, you know, learning is definitely a lifetime experience. I mean, a lifetime process. I I read a lot of books now and I think that just helps keep me motivated and it's always good to learn and to kind of hone your habits to be more productive. And be inspired too. Be inspired, right, right, for sure. That's, That's good. Our last question is, is, what has been your Moby Dick of real estate? Like what's, what's the one that got away? I mean, I think we've probably all had properties that got away because <laughs> you can't buy everything. I would say probably the most recent one was 
actually a few months ago, my property manager in Florida brought me a pocket listing and it was for a property that, that had two houses that were being, being rehabbed. So the houses were projected to rent for about 3000 a month and it was on about an acre of land and the seller wanted 365 for it. So you can definitely get properties kind of close to the 1% rule. And I just picked up a quad in that area, maybe about a couple of months before that. And this is all when we're doing, you know, I was rehabbing the three units with you guys. And I was doing some other rehabs in Florida and in Texas. So I was definitely pretty busy. So I'd sort of mentally kind of checked out that I did not want to do another deal right now. But my property manager told me to call him. So I called him and then he was saying that on that vacant land, the seller was going to put two tiny homes on it that you could build for about 30 grand that would rent for about 800 a month. So if you had the two tiny homes at 30 grand a piece and you'd be all in for about 425, but the rents would be about 4,600 a month. And then now I'm like, okay, that's, that's a pretty solid deal. And you're considering new homes and renovated homes, it should be pretty maintenance free. But like I mentioned, I sort of mentally checked out that I didn't want to do it. So I actually, handed the, the deal to one of my friends who jumped on it and he had it on the contract within like two days. But a couple weeks after that, I talked to that same friend and just asked him, well, how's the deal going? And he's like, well, actually it's going pretty well because seller said they could put five tiny homes on it. So then I'm like, okay, <laughs> so now you're all in for like five fifteen, but then that's like $7,000 of rent. And I was just like, Oh brother. And then he told me that the lender, Said they could probably do it with five percent finance, five percent down as like a second home, and I'm like, okay, okay, I, I learned my lesson. <laughs> I, I could have done it if I if I wanted to, but I just I mentally checked out before really even looking into it. So I would say that the lesson I learned was to definitely, especially if someone brings you a pocket listing that's not available to the public. I mean, go into it with an open mind because. I'm sure you guys know if there's a good enough deal, you'll find a way to finance it or, or you'll find a way to partner with it or partner with someone or you'll find a way to, to take it down. That, but that's kind of a wild deal, Gary. And then, right. <laughs> so you, just, you started with two units and then uh, your guy ended up with seven. <laughs> right. I, mean, I don't know much about tiny homes and it sounds good on paper, so I don't know exactly how it plays out because I think he's still an escrow on it. And I talk to him pretty regularly to see how it's going because obviously I'm like, Oh, this, you know, I just, I kind of want to know what I'm missing out on, but yeah, I would have never crossed my mind to think of a tiny home, but apparently, yeah. Yeah. you know, you always learn something every day. So I think you should ask for that seller's phone number and uh, <laughs> say you want the next one. <laughs> that's a great, that's a great suggestion. Maybe I will. Okay. Well, Gary, it's been very fun talking with you and we really appreciate you coming on and sharing your experiences with us and we just, you know, really appreciate it. So thank you. Yeah, thank you for being so open and honest and just, you know, being willing to kind of dive in on some of the, the tough times. Thank you guys. And anybody who's listening, these guys are my property managers in Portland and they're excellent. They got me the best property that I have there. So anybody who's looking for a property manager in Portland, Look them up. They're excellent. (laughs) Well, thank Thank you, Gary. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast on WIN, your community for investing knowledge for growth. Please take a second to rate us so that we can get more great investors to interview. If you or someone you know wants to be on, please go to westsideinvestors.com and fill out our form.